I have to ask white people as a whole, are they serious about what it means to really end systemic and structural racism? We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Well, hello, everybody. How's everybody doing out there? Welcome, welcome to The Tightrope. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with Brother Cornell West, dear colleague, on a difficult time in the country. We have a very special guest today. We have Michael Moore, who's going to talk with us about one of his latest projects. And we're also going to talk a bit about the current state of the crisis in America and the protests that are consuming much of the country right now. But I'm going to circle our guest right in from the beginning so that we can have as much time in conversation with him as possible. Our guest today is Michael Moore an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker who for over 30 years has tackled controversial and critically important issues in American society. Big business, guns, and the gun industry, the war on terror, governments in general, presidents, capitalism, healthcare, you know, these small marginal topics. And most recently, he is the executive producer of Planet of the Humans, which may be his most controversial film yet. Michael, you're on the tightrope. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm always on the tightrope. <laughs> <laughs> Trisha and Cornell, it is such an honor to be your first guest on your pilot podcast. Whoever invented podcasts must have had you in mind because this is a perfect medium. Your voices must be heard, and especially in a time like this. So thank you for uh, starting a podcast today, and very, very much thank you for having me as your first guest. I'll never forget this uh, honor. Thank you. Goodness. Thank you so much, Michael. Indeed, no brother. There's nobody like you in the culture. Towering artist, prophetic figure, activist to the core, a sense of both humility, but also great confidence in what you have to say in regard to your vision and your witness, my brother. Very, very much so. And we might just want to begin with... Uh, your sense of what's happening in the country and the relation of this unbelievable catastrophe in the criminal justice system and how it relates to the catastrophe on Wall Street, the catastrophe in our environment and ecological realities and the catastrophe in our culture with all of the racism and sexism, and homophobia and transphobia. For the last, this is day 12, since George Floyd was murdered. And to be quite honest, I've been broken by it on some level. This issue of race in this country and the privilege that I grew up with, I didn't grow up privileged. I grew up in a factory home, factory family. My uncle was in the sit-down strike that helped to found the UAW. My father, my grandmother all worked in the factory in Flint, Michigan, but we were white. I've been aware of this since I was at least a teenager of how much easier the doors opened for me, how I was not followed around in a department store. Once I got my driver's license, I was never stopped, and on and on. Those are the, the minor humiliations, of daily humiliations of what we do to people who aren't white, and especially to African-Americans. But 
I think, Pernell, I called you the night or two after George Floyd was murdered, if you remember. Oh, absolutely, my brother. Absolutely. And I said, I'm, I'm not calling for any reason other than I need to speak to a friend. The level of my despair and my despondency over feeling or thinking at the time, this is now just 24, 48 hours after, that we were never going to be able to fix this. And in fighting for so many decades since I was a teenager, when I was first elected to public office when I was 18, and we had a new elementary school in the school district, I was elected to the school board. One of the first things I did in the first year was to, the school board had to name the new elementary school. So I made a motion that we name it Martin Luther King Elementary School. It was essentially an all-white elementary school. <laughs> you just never see that, right? You just never, like, you know, I've always been bothered by the fact that let's just pick the worst street in town and name it after Martin Luther King. I just like, after I pass away, please don't name anything after me. So anyways, not only was my motion defeated, a recall campaign started in the community to remove me from the Board of Education. Mm. And it became quite a discussion on the issue of race. This is 1972. And it was the largest turnout ever for a school district race election. And I won by maybe 50 votes. The community backed me. So since that time, I've done all these things. And of course, you and everybody else has done. But it's just, I was I called you up. And I won't share all of our conversation. Some of it was uh, private, uh, just between friends. You said something to me so profound. And I, I'm going to cry again. I started to cry when you said it. And I hope you don't mind me repeating it. I think it's okay. You say whatever's on your heart and soul, my brother. Well, you said to me that obviously the tragedy of that day was the murder of this man, this good man. But you said to me that on some other level, what made you feel, I've never seen you despondent or, or full of despair, but you were also in shock over the fact that all the bystanders stood by. Nobody intervened, certainly not the other cops, but it sounded like a crowd was growing. And you said to me that if this were back in the 60s, if this was back in the day, there's no way a cop could put a knee to the neck of a black man in the neighborhood like that and get away with it. People would just intervene. And you said to me, and this was the part that really got me, that you were wondering that after all these years and in the time of Trump, in the time of pandemic, have we been turned into a nation of bystanders. Mm. And if that's the case, mm. is that what we are now? If we're no longer citizens, we're no longer active citizens, activists, citizens, that if we have become bystanders and if we are so fearful, as we rightly should be, of the police, of authority, of the authoritarian government that we now live under, that is now today cementing a wall, trying to put up a wall, three walls around the White House. If that's where we're at, and your voice trailed off into silence. And it moved me, Cornell. I didn't want you to hear me tearing up and crying. So I moved the phone away for a few seconds to compose myself. But I couldn't get that thought out of my head the rest of the night. And it stays with me now, these 12 days later, because I refuse to be living in a nation of bystanders. And I'm not leaving. So we got a problem. Because I'm not going anywhere. You're not going No, anywhere. that's real. I, well, I, I'm not going. Trisha, not going either. No, you now, are within, absolutely right. Within 24 hours after that, Tricia Cornell, we saw that we were not in a nation of bystanders. That's right. And thousands took to the street. And then tens of thousands took to the streets. And then hundreds of thousands 
took to the streets. God knows what it'll be this weekend. Bigger than anything we've seen. I'm certain of that. And my spirits have been uplifted because of what I've witnessed and what I've been able in my own small way to participate in. And so now what? That's the question. Now what? And I would love to have a discussion. You've already started that. I've seen you twice now, Cornell, on the news this week. Trish, I don't know if you've been on. I haven't seen you, but you have been clear and you've ignited a conversation. Um, last Saturday evening, ABC cut into their regularly scheduled programming in prime time. On came Terry Moran, the anchor, and he had you. And you spoke to the nation on broadcast network television in prime time, not on cable news. I don't know what people were watching, The Rookie or some (laughs) (laughs) Grey's Anatomy. I don't know what was on. (laughs) But all of a sudden, it went to a cop and robber show, to a real cop and robber show with you, with you telling the nation what we need to be thinking about. And it triggered so many thoughts in me to this day, today, in these now, this would be last Saturday. So these are, this is day seven of that, thinking about. I mean, I've been thinking some very profound thoughts. I am not coming to any table to compromise. I'm not coming to any table to have some mediocre uh, solution to this. I want to talk real talk. I want to throw out ideas that maybe may sound so crazy, but we maybe should we start, haven't we all during this pandemic been sitting at home having a lot of crazy ideas and nobody to talk to? And it's like, maybe some of the ideas aren't so crazy. Maybe we don't want to go back to the old normal. Maybe when we come out on the other side of this, maybe this was some gift from God. Who knows that somehow we've been moved, not just physically and biologically because of the virus attacking us, attacking our physical body, but these last days with the people, with what happened, and not just to George Floyd. We're talking right now, this is Breonna Taylor's birthday, the man, the jogger in in Georgia. It's not just one person. And today we saw the cops knock down in Buffalo, a 75-year-old white man who was protesting. Yep. And it's like, wow, really? This is the moment where we can decide to truly change. And again, I don't mean little changes. I'm talking about some people have already started the discussion. Why do we have a police force? That should be discussed now. What do police do? Police rarely prevent any crime. When do you call the police? After there's a crime, either in session or over. And the police come, they're like the crime scene cleanup committee. And they put around the yellow tape and they gather evidence and then they go try and catch the murderer, the robber, the whatever. But if we want to live in safe neighborhoods, shouldn't the first consideration be, why don't we have a safety patrol, a safety, a peace? Remember they used to use the term peace officers. Why don't we have something like that, that the community controls? And then if we are really concerned about crime, I'm not mocking this. We have crime. But if you want to end crime, this is all I've said all week to everybody, end poverty. If you want to end crime, empower women. The fact that the majority gender still only holds 25% of the seats in our Congress, which essentially is a gender apartheid situation where the minority gender, men, control the majority gender, women. That is morally wrong. And I think if we want to fix the core issues that we need to end poverty, we need to empower women, we need to have an equitable society, and we need to quit kidding ourselves. I know a lot of people might be listening to this, and they love capitalism and, you know, the free enterprise system. And Get over this, folks. That left us a long time ago. If capitalism was ever any good in the first place, it's long gone. There is no free marketplace, by the way. Capitalists these days, 
They don't want any competition. They want to buy out, merge, or eliminate the competition. Their nirvana is if we end up with only one car company, theirs. One airline, theirs. Hmm. You know, one department store, theirs. These are the people that say they believe in capitalism. They actually believe in the old Soviet-style system where we only need one car. We only need one department store. <laughs> <laughs> that one monopoly, that one old one, monopoly. That's right, a monopoly. And a monopoly backed by the state, of the state, the government that protects the monopoly. So these are the fundamental things I think we need to change. And obviously the very first thing in terms of saving black lives is we have to immediately fix We have to defund the police department across the country. We have to demilitarize the police departments. And I want a racism review board in every community where I believe, I'm sorry, white people listening to this, but every white officer, and I know there's a lot of good ones, but when they were arresting this black guy this week in one of the demonstrations, they've got him cuffed and they're hauling him away. And he sees the camera that's behind him. And he turns to the camera as their cops are hauling him away. And he says, There are no good cops as long as there are bad cops. Mm. Wow, that's right. Because the good cops allow the bad cops to get away with it through their silence, turning their head the other way. So I think all white officers need to go through a new review. They need to be vetted and they need to be asked a lot of questions. And you'll know pretty quick whether or not they should be keeping the peace. One of the questions I'd like to ask them is, please tell me the last three books you read. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh no, well, I tell you, we so deeply appreciate you in so many ways, oh brother. Very much so. I have great love and respect for you. I mean, it seems to me that one of the things I had in mind when we were sharing that wonderful conversation was the idea that no self-respecting, self-loving people can sit and see a policeman publicly lynch and kill somebody for nine, nearly nine minutes. That's what I meant by the spectatorial and the bystander sensibility setting in, that people are are eager to sit and watch and not become participants and not become interveners in a crime against humanity. And I just thank God that I grew up in a community. That wasn't happening in Glen Elder in Sacramento. Uh-uh. No, no. We're going to get our partners together. We're going to have the police pull this way. We're going to move in. We're going to be ready to go to jail. But we're going to get that policeman's knee off that brother's neck. Right. There's no way you can just sit there and watch it. Now, it's also true. You are so right, my brother, that uh, within 24, 48 hours after we spoke, it was clear that the bystanding and the spectatorial stance were shattered. People hit the streets. There's now over 4,500, 5,000 people in jail. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a marvelous new militancy around affirming the rich and precious humanity of Black folk. But I think the major problem, you tell me what you think about this too, now, Sister Tricia now. We've got such decadent leadership that lacks imagination and vision and courage. And so what is happening is you're getting spokespersons coming in who are trying to view police accountability as an isolated phenomena that's not connected to the accountability of Wall Street and its crimes, the accountability of Pentagon and its crimes, and the accountability of the White House and its crimes. Right. And that right. includes both parties. 
Mm-hmm. And so that the issue of poverty and wealth inequality, the issue of not enough health care, not enough quality education, not enough decent housing, and not enough rich structures of feeling and meaning in life so that people can feel as if they can go from womb to tomb without being a spiritual zombie. And that's what commodified culture does to people. It dumbs people down. It makes their hearts more chilly and their conscience more coarsened. And they become cynical and spectatorial. And then you get survival of the slickest and the richest. And lo and behold, you lose your democracy. And of course, we're right at, right, we're right at the moment where right. there is a good chance with a fascist militaristic uh, takeover that democracy dies before our very eyes. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought it to this question of not thinking in these insulated and isolated modes of accountability. And, you know, you so are so eloquent on the various ways in which militarism, Wall Street greed and so on are connected. The things that I like to emphasize in partnership with those things are the way in which the focus on extreme cop violence actually normalizes the idea that police can be functional. Right. Because what we do is we look not to the everyday ways in which they roust poor people, feed them into a system, uh, make sure they're fined and and, uh, late fees on fines that turn into felonies that destroy lives for simple infractions. The whole Mm. logic of the police are designed Mm. really to extract resources and contain the poor and contain people of color from segregated white spaces. One of the things that I worry about, I mean, well, before I start worrying, let me say, you know, Michael, I mean, while we're talking this whole time, there's a massive protest in Providence. Providence, Rhode Island is not the kind of city that you normally get add to your riot list if you're giving a history lecture. But people are absolutely done with this situation. And so I'm very proud of our town. So in one way, I'm thrilled to see that it's really filtering everywhere. But that said, I worry about the fundamental fear that whites have about black people, that there is an embeddedness, an unconscious and conscious deep fear that if we don't examine it and expose it, we don't stand, I believe, much of a chance of deeply transforming the role of the police because what drives people's investment in the police is to keep black people away, really. There's been not one law and order campaign in my lifetime, which is unfortunately means a lot of decades, There's not been one law and order campaign that did not have a racialized dimension, that did not either dog whistle or explicitly use race to justify what is the maintenance of deep hierarchies and so on. So for me, in order to really examine how to end this kind of police violence, I have to ask white people as a whole, are they serious about what it means to really end systemic and structural racism? The police are just one little cog in a whole set of systems. And you're looking at deep economic sacrifices and transformations of the public school system and how we fund it and access to affordable housing and refusing to allow for programs to create more and more intergenerational wealth transfers for whites and while others languish. The profound sentencing disparities that we know have destroyed an entire generation or two. That's really, to me, where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, it's not that I don't want to celebrate people protesting in the streets, because I do for this case and cases like it. But it's a whole different story. When you start seeing Upper West Side white families in New York talking like it's Cicero, Illinois in the 60s, 
when the school chancellor wants to integrate the public schools. I want people to confront that while they're outraged. Well, I want to speak to your issue of white fear. Before I say that, I do want to give a shout out to one of the bystanders on the sidewalk in front of Cup Foods there in Minneapolis on May 25th for the nine minutes that he was first tortured, then murdered. And then according to the autopsy, the cop kept the knee on the neck for another two minutes and 50 seconds, almost three minutes, kept the knee on the neck of a dead man. So the man tortures him, he murders him, and then tortures him after he's dead. Who does that? You wouldn't do that to any animal. This is what made what the bystander. We would know none of this, none of this, had not it been for a brave 17-year-old African-American girl. Her name is Darnella Frazier. Hmm. She took that footage that the world saw. She stood there with she stood there with cops surrounding her with guns. They have the cop doing the murdering with the knee. He looks up and sees her. He's so sure that nothing will happen to him in white Minneapolis that he looks right into the lens of her camera. With his hand in his pocket. With his hand in his pocket. He doesn't Mm -hmm. order the other guys to go get her, get her camera, nothing. Because he's not really doing anything wrong, is he? But she stood there. And I was talking to some high school students earlier this week, and I said, you need to know this, that thank you, Steve Jobs, He had the idea. He could have put anything into that iPhone. He could have put a barbecue set. He could have put a rotisserie set. He could have put a whole bunch of forks and knives and spoons. I don't know what he could have dreamed of. He could have put anything into that iPhone, but he put a camera. And that camera is going to be the downfall of this white supremacy, of this white racism. And this young woman, Darnella Frazier, I've already spoken to people at the Academy, the Academy Awards, I said the best nonfiction film of the year has already been made because it has moved millions of people around the country and around the world. The power of art, the arts that have been taken away from our schools, they've killed art, they've killed music, they've killed civics and poetry and everything. And this young woman knew how to operate that camera in such a way when the cop tried to block it, she knew how to move, kept it steady. The camera is never jiggling. I want this woman on the stage of the Oscars next year, and I want to honor her and all the other young people out there who can be citizen filmmakers and to always pull your camera out and start filming that which you see is wrong. That's because you then expose it to the rest of the world. That's a powerful point. Now, you see, brother, brother Michael, you see, I view that as a form of participation, not spectatorship. Oh, yeah. No, no. She wouldn't be a spectator. She was a participant. She was and a shaper, she her, mover. And Cornell, she risked her life doing that. Yes, she did. She and you see what happened life. to Ramsey? You see what happened to Ramsey? Order who did the same thing regarding yeah. our dear brother Eric Gardner. They sent him to jail. That's right. person That's who made the video goes to jail, and the policeman who kills him is out sipping tea. Mm. But to Trisha's point about white fear, yes, white people are afraid. They're afraid because... They know, we know that we've gotten away with this for a long time. I don't mean the getting away with killing innocent and unarmed black men. I'm talking about, we know how we got that job 20 years ago. We know how we got a seat in that classroom, in that school, that excellent school. We know that in the way that women know, if they walk outside of the house after eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night, they have an internal radar that goes up to protect themselves, right? 
because they know the society they live in. Men, when we go out of the house at eight o'clock, we never think about any harm coming to us if we're white. And this is the thing I think most white people know. You know, you've said this, Cornell. I've heard others say it. It's a great metaphor. When the day I was born, my life began on the 50-yard line. I only had 50 more yards to go. If you are black, if you're brown in this country, you're born way back on the half-yard line. And the reason it's not you're not already in the other end zone is you are breathing. When you come out of your mother, you're breathing. Your kidneys are working. So there is some functioning. But you have to run the race now to get to the other end zone, all 100 yards, all 99 and a half yards. You'll never catch up to the, no matter how slow the people are on the 50-yard line. Okay, there's a few you could be. <laughs> but generally, you're not going to catch up. It's rigged from our birth. And white people know this. And the fear, the fear is if we are going to have to give this up, even white liberals, white liberals, you know, they'll do all the good things and they'll say the right things and they'll contribute to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, et cetera, et cetera. But if they had to actually share or maybe even give up some of that privilege, wow, that's a bridge too far. And that's what they're afraid of. They're also afraid of, of this. So I live in Michigan, but I have an apartment in New York when I work in New York. And the apartment building I'm in two, three nights ago, hired an armed guard to stand in the lobby. They locked all the doors. You couldn't get in or out of the apartment building. And I said, well, are you going to put up the plywood next? Because all this is, is an admission. This is here on the Upper West Side. It's an admission that you know that we are the looters. We stole from others. We got the better jobs. We got the better schools. That's theft. That's thievery from the black and brown community. And we know that we are the thieves. We are the looters. And it's an act of violence when the average, or I should say the median net worth of the average white household is $171,000. And the median net worth of the average black household is $17,000. That's from the Federal Reserve, by the way. Those aren't Michael Moore statistics. So already, that's an act of violence. And we know it. And that's why the plywood goes up over the windows. That's why but the see, arm but guard... That, but that raises the tough question that, that you and Sister Tricia were wrestling with, which is, okay, if you got 52% of vanilla sisters who voted for Trump, the gangster neo-fascist in the 53% yeah. uh, for Trump, and even more for the, the white brothers. 65% of white men, which means that's two-thirds. Anytime you see three white guys walking toward you on the street, just know that two of them voted for Trump. Whenever I see that, I always move to the other side of the street. <laughs> you say no, but we say to ourselves, back to Trisha's deep question about white fear, that there's always going to be a significant slice of white brothers and sisters who will be anti-racist and critical of white supremacy. Will not be the vast majority. Now, with the younger generation, we're seeing a shift, a beautiful expansion of that. Many elements there will not be reliable in the context of struggle. So then the question becomes, how do we create multiracial solidarity around the kind of democratic accountability of police, Wall Street, Pentagon, and president? Now, if America cannot do that, then fascism resides on the other side. If America can do that, got to get beyond the reform. Because, I mean, you know, you got Brother Sharpton gave a, uh, a lovely um, eulogy the other day, and we're hearing from Brother Obama and all the Pelosi and so forth trotting out the nice little neoliberal cliches and shibboleths <coughs> about we got to work together and 
we got these reforms. These reforms are as weak as pre-sweetened Kool-Aid, to use the language of Ren Brown, that that's not going to speak to these deeper issues that we're talking about. But if we don't deal with just white fear, it means that those of us who are fundamentally committed to the fundamental radical democratic revolutionary change of our society and empire that we're going to go down fighting. The fascists are going to take over. We got to get ready to die. So what you're saying is, that is where we are now. Yes. And that's why white people, especially young white people listening to this need to make that commitment. It means that it will require sacrifice and it may require some of our lives. I hate to say that, but I well, some, some of us must die. Some of but us some must die. die. I know the struggle it's, for it's, freedom always fertilized by those who love the people enough that they're willing to tell the truth, seek justice and die. That's just a fact. If this was 1968 Sacramento, as you said, and a cop is killing a black man with his knee to the neck. Nine minutes. Love. And you, yes. And so you yell out to five people down there, three people down there, two people down. Come on, come on, everybody. Come on. We got to stop this, you know, or you distract the cops to pull them away or do whatever you got to do. But you know, if 12 of you are doing this, the risk that one or two of you may die is there. And somehow this keeps us from acting. My father was in World War II in the South Pacific and the Marines. I don't know how they landed on all those islands. They put the door of the amphibious vehicle down and half of them would be mowed down before they left the thing to get on the beach. What was in our parents and our grandparents' generation to where they were willing to take those risks? My uncle, who risked being clubbed to death by the Flint police because he went and took over the factories with the other auto workers, but they did it. And we have to have that same commitment. And we have to convince our elder white family members. After, in the 04 election, this is a beautiful example of how change can occur. The 04 election, Carl Rove had this idea, let's get anti-gay marriage ballot measures on as many states as possible. That will bring out our base and we'll reelect George W. Bush. They got it on 14 state ballot initiatives in the general election. All 14 states passed it. It brought out all the gay-hating people. And I remember people that night in the gay community, gay organizations saying, well, that's the end of that. We'll never have gay marriage in our lifetime. That was in 04. By 2015, it was legal. By 2015, it was legal. How'd that happen? Mm. Not just from the gay organizations being politically active. It happened because individual gay and lesbian citizens from that night decided to come out of the closet, tell their parents, tell their friends, tell their coworkers, tell their co-su, risk, take a risk. I might get beaten for this, but I'm going to tell people I'm gay. And enough of that happened over those next nine or 10, 11 years to where, and I knew, I always felt this would happen. Once you knew that your best friend, you're not going to start hating your best friend. Most parents are not going to hate their daughter. Not all, but most will not hate her because she's not heterosexual. They love and love drove this because gay people were willing to risk coming out. And they made that happen to where the Supreme Court, with a Republican majority, said that, you know what, you should be able to marry the person you're in love with. And this is what this country is. And back at the end of the Civil War, boy, the white people down South, all the things I've read about, they were certain that once the South lost the war, the slaves would rise up and slit all their throats. It didn't happen. They couldn't believe it. They thought it would happen because, well, that's what they would do if they had been the slaves. That's if right. they had been that's tortured right. and raped. That's, you know, South Africa. Oh, my God, the whites in South Africa. Oh, my God, if Mandela gets out of prison, if the black majority rules, we're dead. And then Madame Mandela becomes president. Nobody dies. 
I mean, nobody, there's not an official state program to kill you for mistreating us so poorly for 100 and plus years. Now, why, why is that? Why is that? Because I'll tell you, this is how white people think. And I ask you to consider this scenario. What if the shoe was on the other foot right now this week after George Floyd? What if we were actually living in a majority black country and whites were the minority? Whites were only 15% of the country. What if that were the case? And black cops consistently, methodically murdered our white sons, killed little Jimmy, little freckled-faced Billy, pulled him over in the car and shot him in the car. Mm. What do you think, white, how do you think white America would respond? I'm talking about, I'm not the white America you saw two weeks ago in the state capital of Michigan with their assault weapons. We are armed to the teeth. Do you think that we white people would allow black cops to roam without mercy and kill our children? Are you kidding me? We would have snipers throughout every white neighborhood shooting every cop on sight. And you know what? We would have an actual right to do that because it's called self-defense. That's why white people are afraid because white people know what we would do. But black, why don't black people do that? Why don't black South Africans do that? Why didn't the slaves do that? And I've said this to friends over, I said, you know, it's amazing. 90% at least, and with Trump, it's 97% right now in the polls. 90% of African-Americans will vote for the Democrat on the ballot. And I'll say to people, this is a conversation that white people will have with each other, all right? Isn't that amazing that African-Americans continue to vote for a party that does damn little for them, but because the other party is so much worse, and yet that party just takes it for granted. That party's candidate can say to Charlemagne, you ain't black. I think part of it has to do with the fact that on the one hand, you are so absolutely right. And I think white brothers and sisters ought to give black people a standing ovation. And instead of producing black versions of the Ku Klux Klan, we produce Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman yes. and A. Philip Randolph and, and Fannie Lou Hamer. But at the same time, it's also the case that the alternative to the duopoly of the neo-fascist wing of the power elites who's Trump and company and the neoliberal wing of the power elites who was Biden and, and Clinton and Obama and company, that when we try to forge a third option, we get shot down or treated like Martin King or a whole host of others. We get murdered, assassinated, incarcerated, our character assassinated in terms of the mainstream press, in terms of the mainstream institutions, so that you got a combination. You got white fear on the one hand, going back to Trisha's profound question, and you're wrestling with it, my brother, but you also have black fear, because you see, black people have been taught to be deferential to white supremacist authority, to keep fear inside of them so that they would fit in, so they would adjust themselves to an unjust status quo. They become so well adapted to the kind of mainstream sensibilities because they're scared to go on the third option, which is to die. And so we get circumscribed, we get contained. I mean, it goes back to Henry Highland Garnett when he first gave the great speech with one leg in the 1840s when he said, for black people, Pharaoh was on both sides of the bloody red seas. Mm. And you could hear somebody just saying, can somebody sing a song, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could somebody touch me? Could somebody grin? Could somebody tell a joke? 
And here come Aretha and here come Richard Pryor. That's part of the richness of our artistic tradition that we've had to sing songs and crack jokes in order to deal with our cracked open hearts, given the limited options and alternatives that we have. And yet we've always had, again, white, brown and indigenous peoples as comrades, but never enough to get the never kind enough. of full-fledged accountability of police power, Wall Street corporate power, Pentagon militaristic power. Because you got to keep in mind that, uh, you know, the, those drones that are dropped in Yemen and other places, they have funerals just like George's family had. And those funerals are because of U.S. bombs coming out of the White House. That's true for Bush, it's true for Obama, and it's true for Trump. And their lives are just as precious as anybody else's lives. So you can't talk about militarism abroad without talking about militarism domestically. And the two tied to domestic violence, on the one hand, tied to Wall Street corporate power that thinks they could get away with anything at the same time. Those are the, the, the signs of a, of a rot. And the rot is the lack of democratic accountability. And I think that's in many ways our fundamental challenge. If we can't deal with that, then uh, we're sliding down the slippery slope to neo-fascism and to a chaos that results in militaristic rule. Well, let me, before we get very close to the end here, I just want to say a couple of things about this. I mean, I completely agree with what both of you are focusing on, but I just want to give it a slightly different twist, which is to say that for every Frederick Douglass and Fannie Lou Hamer, there were many people who created the conditions for those titans by making on-the-ground sacrifices to not power directly for the sake of the generations to follow to be alive. Because That's true. So, and again, of course, there's people who are just completely without uh, the capacity for sacrifice and courage. But then there are many, many, many people who are saying the long distance win is only going to happen if the short distance survival takes place. So there's some layers there that I think are important. And I think our hope is partly related to that, right? I mean, if we were to imagine a month ago that this level of protest would happen, the answer would be probably not. What's the That's evidence? That's true. You That's know, true. Uh, there's no, and during a pandemic. During a pandemic. I mean, to put oh, everybody's yeah. life in jeopardy, even if the police don't show up. And then there have been a lot of police who have been kneeling. Not that I'm trusting that as a massive political movement. It is significant that any of them are functioning in some kind of solidarity beyond the blue line. And that opens up the possibility for internal challenges to the state on regards to the purposes of the police. Now, again, you know, my hope is not overflowing here, but... No, um, we resonate with your uh, your analysis and your yeah. acknowledgement of the source Tr- of a hope here. Though. But one other thing I'd want to add is that there is, I think, a serious reckoning within the military. I think that there's a conscientious objection uh, stirring that if the military is told to turn on the American people, that there may be a significant number who engage in a disciplined disobedience, a disciplined defiance of those kind of orders. That's a good sign, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Not not only that, can I just point out, Cornell, that general that walked over to the church with Trump to hold up the Bible for the photo op Mm -hmm. this week? That general walking along there, and look at all the generals that have come out and spoken out against using the National Guard to attack nonviolent protesters. And that general walking with Trump, he went to Princeton. There's a lot of these generals are very smart. I don't want to give the Pentagon too much credit here, but I'm just saying 
that there are these slivers of hope. And I think that, that Tricia, that one of the hopes is just the demographics and the data and the trends. And they're now saying it'll, in 2042, 2043, we will no longer be a majority white country. For the last eight years in September of every year for the last eight years, the majority of our little kids entering first grade are not white. The majority. The demographic is going to change. And I say this to white people who don't want to change. Maybe you should think of changing because it ain't going to be your country for that much longer. We're all going to have to learn to get along and live with each other. And why not start now? Why wait 20 years? It's going to happen. It is happening. You know it's happening. And we've raised a generation of young people who, when they fall in love, they're not checking out the pigmentation of the skin. They're in love. That is happening, as you know, more and more, we are going to be, I think, a better society and filled with more love. But for the two-thirds of the white people that are either voted for Trump or thinking of voting for Trump or whatever, it's now might be a good time for some reflection. Now, just for your own self-interest, it might be better to get along so that you can go along. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very real, my brother. Cornell, can you share something you also told me on the phone the night after George Floyd's murder? Because... I was pretty angry and I'm not a violent person. I've always considered, I'd signed up as a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. So, I, I mean, that's who I am. But I have to tell you, the thought of not hurting a human being, but of taking my baseball bat and breaking some glass, it was in my head. I didn't like it. I didn't like that feeling. You said to me about the difference between revenge. I can't remember exactly how you, but maybe you could share this with people. Oh, I was talking about the difference between revenge and justice. Yes. Uh, uh, that you just don't want to add to the hatred that's already running a foot and a muck in the society and the world. You want to keep your righteous indignation like Jesus running out the money changers of the temple in Jerusalem and the solidarity with the folk who are suffering, the George Lord Floyds, but also the, the indigenous peoples and the brown folk and the immigrants and the white poor. I mean, we've got to have a solidaristic orientation that's universal without ever downplaying our own particular suffering. But I just didn't want any kind of revenge to flow out of your loving soul, my brother, because the revenge is always blinding. We need people who have broad visions so people can see things that other people don't see and feel more deeply with love that other people don't feel. And most importantly, to act more courageously for people who are too conformist and complacent and cowardly. Those are the great examples that we have. And thank God we've had some great examples like that in the history of this nation. And they come in all colors. There's no doubt about that. You know, we haven't got into Little Maria Child. We haven't got into Ann Braden. We haven't got into Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. We haven't got into Edward Zaid. And we got they come from all different cultures. But to zero in on that vicious white supremacy that's at the center of the predatory capitalist civilization with its imperial tentacles around the world. We've got to be broad. And that's why Martin King, in a way, becomes so indispensable and crucial at this particular moment, my brother. Yeah. I'm going to and jump right in very quickly here because we're almost out of time. we got one minute to go. And I wanted to say one thing and then make sure we transition. I know people are you know, probably out to get into these protests tonight. First, just, you know, thank you very much, Michael. This has been fantastic. I hope we can have you again. And the second thing is, these conditions are such that we really don't have a choice but to try to keep moving forward. And maybe people like you who are pacifists who feel they want to bash in some glass can actually feel some empathy and understanding 
for the kinds of city violence that we've seen, right? Not that we would endorse it or be happy about it, but, no, but we, we understand understanding. it. Right. That's really an important key, right? Not just to demonize, but to understand and develop that empathy. We barely, we did not get to audience questions directly, but I will say that the top several questions were answered in our conversation. How do we hope? What makes us hopeful? We talked about that. We talked a bit about what to do with how to change the police system, how to avoid being a bystander citizen. I mean, we, I think you all answered all the questions our audience has. So we did all right, even though we didn't do it. And I want to thank the audience for listening. Yeah, I'm sorry that I took up all my time talking, but you know, it was wonderful. It's a profound moment. It's a profound moment we're in. I'm also, just before we started, I got word that this film that you mentioned of mine, this latest film, Planet of the Humans, it had been taken down off YouTube and there's been a fight against it by people who want to censor it. They don't want people to see this film. And for the last 11 days, my YouTube channel has been dark. And just before we went on here, YouTube put it back up. Our campaign to stop the censorship succeeded. And now people can see the film. So I was in somewhat of a buoyant place when we started. But this, again, this conversation has been so uh, profound and, and moving to me. I'm so glad the two of you have this podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, if I could just close with a song on this day, a young woman, an EMT, a woman who was like risking her life to save lives in Louisville, Kentucky, was murdered by the police in her home. They shot eight bullets into her. And it's one of many, many, many. And it's been on people's minds. And and as I mentioned earlier, her name is Brianna Taylor. And today would have been her birthday. So I'm not a professional here, but I would just like to close with a song for her, if that's okay. Please do. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Brianna. We will make this right for you. That's it. God bless you. No, God bless you, though, brother. Love you Thank much. You, Michael. This we shall never forget it. We can't bring her back, but the memory will empower us to keep fighting. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Cornell. This is Thank uh, you, Trish. Thank you, Sister Tricia. And please, thanks everyone for being with us. And we hope to get you back soon and talk more about all the issues that we didn't get to this time. But also to the audience, please don't forget to share, subscribe, and join us next time on The Tightrope. Thank you for listening to The Tightrope Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to 411 at speakerbox.com. That's the numbers 411 at S-P-K-E-R-B-O-X dot com. The Tightrope Podcast is produced by Speakerbox Media in collaboration with the Podcast Laundry Production Company and is executive produced by Dr. Cornell West, Professor Tricia Rose, and Jeremy Berry. 